Super Talk Mississippi media production. Come see your locally owned and operated Linton Glass for all your glass needs. No matter what glass you need to replace, you can count on Linton Glass. Call us today at 601-835-4336 or find us on the web at lintonglass.com. I'm Steve Azar, and I'm on the other side of the microphone, meaning I'm asking the questions this time, and oh, have mercy for the airwaves. I spent 20 years in Music City, wrote and made some hits, traveled the world, and then moved my family back to the birthplace of American music and where the magnolia trees prosper. And now every time I put my feet on Mississippi soil, when I'm off the road, well, I'm at peace. On this show, it's all about hearing the story straight from the mouths of the friends I've made along the way, their journey to success. Heck, there might be someone on, I don't even know, but you know how us Mississippi types are. We tend to take well to new company. In a Mississippi Minute, all 60 of them. I'm Steve Azar. It's just like that muddy river moving slow. Ain't no worries, it's how life goes. In a Mississippi Minute. That's right. Today on In a Mississippi Minute is a multi-talented actor, director, musician, songwriter. Known for his portrayal, the household name, of Dr. Joel Fleischman on Northern Exposure. That leading role garnered him three Golden Globe and two Emmy nominations for Best Actor in a Dramatic Series, and later again for his role as FBI agent Don Epps on Numbers. But lately, he's been spending a little of those creative juices on his latter passion, making music and records, and getting out and performing all on his own terms. So let's get it on with my man, Rob Mora. What's up, Rob? Hey, hey, Steve. I'm so, I was so looking forward to talking with you. I had... Uh... I had such a good time those few times we got to hang out, and uh, so I, I was happy to, that you called. Oh, yeah. So the B, was it the BMW we first met? Uh, Rob? Either there or the, what was the, the Humana, uh, oh, no, well, uh, the Bob Hope. Yes, maybe. yes. The Bob Hope, and then we probably met again at the, yeah, I think it was the Bob Hope, I want to say. Yeah, you're right. You per- I think you performed there. Yeah. And you were great. Oh, yeah, well, that was uh Always difficult when you're jumping up. But then again, I had Robbie Krieger to my left and Steve Cropper to my right. And Not too bad. <laughs> if you fall down, they'll pick you Bobby, up. Uh, Bobby, you know, Danny Saffron from Chicago on drums. It was, yeah, yeah, you're all set. Yeah, well, you held your own. You fit in there uh, perfectly. You're too good. Hey, so let's talk about this. First of all, I hate that they they went, and I hate using the word hate, but, uh, but disappointed that they changed the format of the Bob Hope and they've taken the name off. And, you know, it was know. such a great event. A great event. And more importantly, they haven't invited me since. No, I know, I know, I know. They they eliminated all of us. <laughs> yeah, it's all right. That though. was fun. That was a fun one, man. That was a definite wild time. It, it was. It was. Okay, so hey, Rob, let's dig back in the past. I got to know what got you to where you got you. Uh, my listeners love hearing about your life growing up. You grew up in New York, or well, you were born in New York State. I'm not sure how long you stayed there, but tell I me about growing up in as a youth. I was uh, uh, so I was born in New Rochelle. I was raised in White Plains and Scarsdale. That's in Westchester, the suburb of New York City. And then I was a troubled kid. You know, my parents were divorced, and I was aimless and getting in all kinds of trouble and getting kicked out of school right and left. And so my mom, um, I think she borrowed some money and got me on a scholarship to go to, uh, you know, a super uh, uh, kind of prep school up in uh, New Hampshire called Cardigan Mountain School. It was a junior prep for sixth through ninth grade, and I went there for eighth and ninth. And that was really significant 
uh, turning point for me because I was exposed to all kinds of people that were, um, you know, disciplined. And I, I, you know, I was into sports as a kid, so I played all. I wasn't good at any of them, but I played them all. And you know, I had a, a great coaches there that took me under their wing and 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 gave me guidance. And I I didn't really do well at, at scholastically, but it, it the exposure to what people can do with their lives really had a big impact on me. Wow. Um, and it's, and then I went back. I tried to go back to high to public school back in in Scarsdale with my mom, and I didn't last but half a year. And uh, and then tried moving down to live with my dad in Florida, um, and that's where I discovered acting. And I was 15, and uh, it was like it was like a calling. You know, it was like I was watching the movie Grease. It was with my friend Tony. We were sitting in the theater. I'd never thought about acting before, huh. and. And in the middle of that movie, at some point, I just had this epiphany, and I was like, oh, I can do that, or I want to do that, or that looks like fun. And uh, and since wow. I've worked with John Travolta a couple times, so the kind of synchronicity of that yeah. was, a, was a big uh, a milestone for me. Um, and then after that, I had a focus and a purpose, and I kind of got my life together. I stopped getting in trouble, and I started to do anything I could to act anywhere I could. So it was mainly high school plays. And and then I cut school. I heard they were they needed extras in the movie Caddyshack, <laughs> and uh, I had caddied a little bit. So they and they were having a hard time finding real kids, you know, young guys because they couldn't get out of school. So I was willing to cut school for six weeks. <laughs> and uh, I can't, I'm all over that movie. There's a little fat version of me. What? In almost every scene you look at. Where there's where, that's on the golf course. If you look hard, you'll see me in the background. And any cat stuff in the caddy shack, I'm 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 there. I'm wearing like a lot of times. I'm wearing a a jean vest over one of the Bushwood Country Club T-shirts or uh, a football kind of mesh football a purple uh, practice jersey. I'm I'm all over that movie. And you're caddying, so you're at like the caddy shack itself, exactly. right? Exactly. Get out of here. Get the yeah. so you weren't. I about to say I know you weren't Spalding. <laughs> no, no, I wish. Hey. But I became a bit of the mascot on the set because I was a real kid, you know, and I and I could actually you know carry a golf bag, and so they all kind of were really nice to me. Like Michael O'Keefe used to put me on the front of the line at at, at lunch and say that I was the star of the movie, and hmm. you know it was this exposure to Hollywood. And Bill Murray would come walking in at seven a.m. just not even having been to sleep with a drink in his hand. and <laughs> I saw all of it, how it worked. And the coolest thing was Brian Doyle Murray, who's Billy, Billy's brother. Right, yeah, I know Brian Doyle. Who co-wrote the movie. You know, really, he was the head of the caddies, you know, took me under his wing and was you know, talking to me all the time and telling me stuff about how it works. And, and at the end of the shoot, he said, hey, kid, if you ever come to New York, look me up. And he gave me his number. Wow. And I took that, and it was like the golden ticket in uh, uh, Willy Wonka, you know, it was like, oh, and I kept that preserved in my wallet for, it was probably a little over two years, where I eventually made my way to New York to pursue acting. I wasn't even 18 yet, and I was living almost in the city, trying to make it as an actor, and of course I pulled out that number, and I called, and I said, hey, uh, you remember me? And I don't know if you remembered or not, but he said, yeah, come on up to this, come on up to the SNL. This is 1979. And he says, and bring some pot. And I was like, okay. So I go up to the show, and they make me an extra in uh, a bunch of scenes. One in, and Rodney Dangerfield was the host, coincidentally. And so 
I was in a jury scene, in a courtroom scene, and I was a juror. 12, 13 years later, I'm hosting SNL. Uh, this is crazy. And, okay, wait a yeah, minute. It's like such, <laughs> these kind of milestones and synchronistic <laughs> kind of events are, they, it's not like you can live for them, but when they happen, at least to me, they assure me that I'm on the right path. So and I, anyone who's in a creative path knows you're always thinking you're doubting yourself, you're thinking, I can't do it, I shouldn't do it, I'm not good enough. And so these little things helped me. And so there I was in the office of Lauren Michael on Monday of the week I'm hosting SNL, and I say, hey, you know, I was on the show before. And he's like, what are you talking about? And I said, uh, yeah, I was this extra. And they pull up the film, and there I was. And I think in my monologue, we talk about how I've been, you know, in this training program to be a host <laughs> all these years. <laughs> We're talking to Rob Mora. Hey, Rob, wait a minute. Yeah. Okay, I got to back up. I got two two things. First of all, you know, we do the Caddyshack every year, and so I've gotten to know all the brothers and Andy, and and obviously Joel's been on my show, and Joel's a pal, and uh, and and so I've gotten to know them all, and Bill, and and obviously I'm a fan of their family and what they do. Uh, they're very giving, a very yeah, giving right. brotherhood, and um, and I just love I love every one of them. But let me ask you this. And in fact, I just got through texting my buddy Chris, who runs the whole event, because we were texting back and forth. They always do just, donate you packages. You through that movie, and you'll see. You just have to look hard. I was a fat, it was a fat little pudgy version of me, but you'll see me in there. I love it. I, oh, I, I'm going to go back and watch. Listen, I grew up watching that thing. You know, I'm one of the guys that watches a movie a thousand times, and you think I'm kidding? A thousand. So, I mean, it, it used to put me to sleep. The same movie, and Caddyshack was one of the top five. So, yeah. I, I'm sure that when, once I get in there, I'm, I'm going to crack up. I'm going to take a picture of it and send it to you. Yeah, I'm in the scene. I'm in the scene with the the, the thing in the pool. You know. Oh, I love it. I love it. The other thing I wanted to ask you is, I want to go back for a second. You just, you know, with with high schools and stuff, and and you talk about being able to go to a school that you had some real mentorship. Uh, from coaches yeah. and teachers, and you seem to excel there, um, you know, as far as, as gr true growth. And then you go back to your public school. What was the difference for you? You know, you, can't, you couldn't get away with much for long at the prep school. They'd kick you out, and, uh, and they were just on you. You know, it was a very structured environment. It wasn't a, a military place, but it had a, you know, it was just hard. You know, you couldn't get away with it. And whereas in high school, I was living with my mom, control me you know i was a wild kid and as soon as i got back into the, the the realm with my friends in that age and trying to prove yourself and you know i just got off the rails instantly you know just instantly i was yeah. just in trouble and you know we were we were rip, we were breaking into the school and stealing stuff and i was getting busted for shoplifting and, i just don't see it you know, just i don't see it stuff. you know nothing nothing hardcore but stupid stuff yeah um, and I think the real reason was, I think, you know, my, the divorce, to be honest, it happened when I was nine. I think that really, I say that it, it, um, it was like a fall from grace. You know, I lived in what seemed like a kind of nice, normal American existence, and then it was gone. And my dad didn't behave well, and all of a sudden, like, the world cracked open. And, you know, so I just, uh, I just started acting out. Um, wow. That's crazy, talking to the talented Rob Morrow. We are in a Mississippi Minute. I'm Steve Azar. Stand by. In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, right here on Super Talk Mississippi. I'm Steve Azar. I'm with 
the multi-talented actor, musician, Rob Morrow, and he's got a family. Uh, Rob, tell me about your wife and, and your beautiful daughter. How, you know, what's that like being a... In the limelight and and be, and being a dad and you know and being a husband through with a career like you've had, I think we live a relatively normal life. Um, you know, I'm really lucky. I've been married for uh, tw- coming on 21 years, and um, and I fell in love with my. W- I, I met my wife even way before I met. We got together, but I I was in love with her from the minute I met her. And so when we got together, it was a cool story because I had been in love with her, but we went our separate ways. But she has this amazing name. Uh, it's Debon, D-E-B-B-O-N, and her last name is Ayer, A-Y-E-R. She's Debon Ayer. And uh, it's her real name. It's her given name. And um, and she is that. She is Debon Ayer. And uh, so my friends, for the years that we weren't together, always remember me talking about this girl. And they would be like, who's this Debon Ayer you keep saying? And I, in my mind, I was always like, she was the one that got away. But then she got married, and she went her, she, she got involved in... I remember her telling, you know, we would call each other once a year. I never saw her. I didn't hang out with her much. But because we have the same birthday, we would call each other, or I would send her a card or something. And one year I call her, and she tells me she's getting married. And I was like, oh, that's so good. I'm so happy for you. And then years later, I call her, and she tells me her marriage is in trouble. And I was like, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. (laughs) And then I moved back to New York after Northern Exposure, and I buy an apartment in the West Village, and it's on her block. It just was a coincidence. And I decided to throw myself a birthday party since I'm back in New York and all my friends. And I have, you know, now I'm a different person. I'm famous and I got money. So I throw a party. And I say, I call Deb and I say, you got to come. It's your birthday too. And she showed up at the party. And from that moment, we were together. And the I next birthday, uh, I asked her to move in. And the next birthday, I asked her to get married. And the next birthday, we got married. I love it. And, I love uh, and then a couple of years later, we had our daughter, and we decided to keep the tradition of puns alive. <laughs> so uh, if we had a son, I wanted to name him Bone, Bone Morrow, but she said that, that could not happen. <laughs> I love it. I said he'd be a great musician named Bone Morrow. Oh, yeah. But she said no. But we ended up having a daughter, and we named her Two, T-U, and she's Two Morrow. That the only celebrity so... thing that's hard is that she shows up on all the lists of celebrities with weird names. So sometimes she used to get a little... I think she actually liked it, to tell you the truth, but yeah. she acted like she was insulted by being made fun of. <laughs> Gwyneth Paltrow's got a kid named Apple and you know all these people. But, but the weird thing is in L.A., especially where we live, everyone's got weird names for their kids. So she never had it. She never came home once saying, oh, my name's so weird, you know? Right. She, she, she embraced it and... Uh, and we gave her a good middle name in case it was uh, in case it was trouble. And right. I ended up calling her that half the time, which is Simone, uh, based on my grandfather Simon. I love it. We're t- my our oldest son's name is Strack, which is a family name on my wife's side, and uh, and so everybody goes. They think I named him Strat after the guitar. I said, No, 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 it's Strack with C K. And they said, What, Rob? Let's jump into your time. Uh, I mean, is Northern Exposure the big break, or was it? You've gotten all these starts, and and you you're just sort of prying your way into all of these situations, just working out. So, yeah. was it a struggle, a time or two before? Obviously, Northern Exposure, then Saturday Night Live, right? Yeah, yeah. So tell me, tell me, sort of the road to Northern Exposure. Northern was was definitely a game changer. You know, it put me on the map. It changed my life in radical, significant ways. I was, you know, quote, rich and famous. 
uh, I had 10 years almost to the day when Northern Exposure happened. I had five, four or five really difficult, classic, struggling, starving, literally having not knowing where I was going to get a meal, living with three guys in some crummy apartment. Um, and then, meanwhile, studying, acting, doing hundreds of terrible plays that no one saw, but learning my craft. And after about four or five years, I started to get commercials. Um, I'd get one or two commercials a year, and, and that would be, I'd make good, really great coin. I mean, for me, it was like a million. It was probably like $30,000, a year, but that was like a million dollars. Right, right. And then, then I started to kind of live like a, a working actor, and I started to be able to get an apartment on my own. Um, and shortly thereafter, I started to get guest stars on TV shows and a lot of more high-profile plays in New York. I co-founded a theater company that's still in existence with a lot of people who became very famous, Marissa Tomei and um, uh, Gina Gershon and, and uh, wow. uh, Kenny Lonergan, who won the Academy Award yeah, last year. Yeah, love them. Um, and uh, all, you know, Matthew Broderick, Sarah Jessica, everybody was in there. And that became one of my artistic homes. And, uh, and I started to get guest spots on TV shows, and I started to become, you know, the casting people in New York were looking out for me, you know. And so every pilot season, I'd kind of go to the head of the class, and I'd get auditioned for all the good pilots. And, you know, eventually I'd book some, and they wouldn't get made. Or, um, and then eventually I, uh, I auditioned for Northern, and, uh, and I was on top of my game, you know. It was... It, it felt like a I was right for it, but also I was really um, I was I was I was on top of it. Like I just knew I was I wasn't like it wasn't like I thought I was the greatest actor in the world, but I knew how to do what I did, and I was ready. You know, so by the, when the time I and that show was great because it wasn't a pilot; it was eight episodes off the bat. I'll never forget the day I got it because I was in this hotel. I got flown out first class to this hotel in L.A. and I was in the hotel when I got the call that I got it and I just got up on the bed and jumped up and down screaming I'm out of debt because at that point I was about $40,000 in debt and one phone call it was yeah. wiped out and then and you know and then everything changed you know the uh we're talking to actor Rob Morrow and we're gonna get into the musician side of him in just a little bit but the the role I mean obviously the show worked do you, do you ever think about the chemistry uh the formula that make that makes a show just pop and stay. Yeah, because you know we're trying to do some new ones, and so I think about it all the time. Um, I think there was something unique. I mean, there is something unique about the voice of that show. Um, it it had a it it's a highbrow and a lowbrow show. You can be an intellectual, and you can be a, a, a non. You know, you can be you know someone who doesn't doesn't think high thoughts at all. You, you, it, it's, it's funny and it's serious. It's spiritual. It's metaphysical, and it's and it's and it's slapstick. It's it's got so much going on, and and then under this umbrella of what we call a benevolent universe, where anyone could come and exist, meaning the characters or people that showed up from time to time as guests, they could come and exist in their own unique, odd ways. There was the first gay the first gay marriage on that show. You know, on TV. Wow, um, I didn't know that. There was all these kind of uh, just unusual, um, 
unusual inter- ways of doing television. And, and also, I think one of the things, speaking to your question, that really distinguished it, and I don't think gets talked about enough, is that it's what I call the cinematizing of television. It was one of the first examples of a TV show where the landscape was a character. And that show was shot oh. like a movie. Right. And most TV shows up till then were shot in L.A. You know, they weren't on location that much. And if they were, they didn't capture the landscape the way this did. So I think all those elements coming together, um, and it was an accident. I don't think the network believed in it. I didn't think they thought it was going to last. You know, it took them a while to even get behind it, um, even after it was on. It, but, but it became a cult hit, and then it became a, a regular hit. Today, in the day and age of how things have to just immediately make an impact and connect, I mean, uh, it seems difficult now to, to even have time to build that cult following. I mean, is it getting yeah. frustrating now uh, with sort of the way things are, or the fact that now there's all of these different media outlets that give you opportunities to do it besides ABC, right, or CBS? I call it the platinum age of television because I think it's easier on a certain level because for the most, I mean, the networks are still dragging their, you know, they're, they're still trying to use their old model of making a pilot and but it's a broke model. It doesn't really work, and, and I don't even think it's cost-effective. Um, so all the news upstarts, all the cable and the streaming services, they tend to order a show in episodes, not a pilot. Uh, you know, right. They tend to order eight or ten of them off the bat. And so you can kind of prove the concept. So you're not, you're not trying to do something in one show. It's very difficult to make a pilot. You've got so many chefs and so many people to satisfy and and the pressure is so great, and they're spending you know somewhere in the neighborhood of four to five million dollars, and no one knows if it's ever going to see the light of day. Right. And there's all this pressure, you know, and 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 they want to watch every dime they spend, and so so I think the way they're doing it now is is much better. Um, I love it. I love we're know. talking to Rob Morrow, and he's going to play DJ right now. Uh, you know, we are the birthplace of American music, so I'm sure there's been some inspiration come from our home in mississippi all the way into your heart and soul it's the way it is so would you like to hear a little bit of jimmy rogers i'm going deep or jimmy buffett uh jimmy rogers i love it i'm hoping will's gonna play we're in the jailhouse now you're in the mississippi minute i'm steve azar with rob morrow and uh i'm having a blast we'll be right back i met his old gal sadie she says have you seen my baby I told her he was downtown in the can She went down to the jail Just to go his bail She says I've come down here to get my man She's in the jailhouse now She's in the jailhouse now So you in a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, right here on Super Talk Mississippi. I'm Steve Azar. We are with one talented actor and musician, Rob Morrow. Take me, why did you, you walked from Northern Exposure toward the end 
why did you do it and do you do you regret it or was it an important move for you i did it for a good reason i do kind of regret it because you know what i didn't appreciate was you know uh, i mean i don't know if i regret it i I, I mean part of me regrets and part of me doesn't um it obviously worked out for me um but and and the reason i left the show it's a couple it's an interesting thing is one was i had done 101 episodes and i was a very idealistic young actor at that time after 100 episodes you're not doing anything but getting a nice paycheck and repeating yourself I mean, Shakespeare couldn't write 100 good episodes. So I felt like I was just doing this thing, and I was going to lose my edge. And that was the main catalyst. But then, and this is a story that people don't know, I was making a movie with Robert Redford. Robert Redford was directing it. And we became pals, and we were hanging out, and he would loan me his houses. And uh, I said to him, I said, Bob, should I leave the TV show? And he was like, yeah, it's time. And as soon as Robert, excuse me, that's Robert right. got that. said that to me, I was like <laughs> out the door. You know, that's what, that's like talk about my mentor. I mean, he was like, you know, he was an idol before I even yeah. knew he was an idol. I just quit something and, I didn't even know I quit because I heard that. I'm in. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and so, like, you know, that became, you know, I thought I was going to become a movie star, which I I didn't. But but I thought, well, if Robert Redford's giving me this advice, it's got to be right. So it was. Very amicable. I think somehow it got mis. Uh, uh, it didn't get represented quite in the press. Uh, you know, I went to the network. I went to the studio. I told them I want to leave. They said, "Okay, at least stay for thirteen more episodes so we can figure out a way to creatively get you out." It wasn't. It wasn't acrimonious. There was an acrimonious fight for renegotiation a couple of years before that, and I think the two things got conflated. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Like people said, I was. I threatened to leave the show because I wasn't getting paid more which is not the case but um hmm. when i did leave it 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 was the right thing to do um the reason i say i might regret it a little bit is because now i know even though i've been very lucky you know to have a couple hits it's it's really hard to get a show to stick let alone last for five years so if if i were in that same position now at my age i would stay for 20 years because i just like to work and I like to have a place, and I like to take care of my family, and I like to help the world. And if I'm making a lot of money, I'm giving a lot away, you know. That. And so all those good things I could do are, would be would would be the reason I would stay now. But you know, having left, I, I've had a really interesting eclectic career, and um, and I've had ups and downs, and I've gone into all kinds of areas that I wouldn't have probably been able to if I just was going for the paycheck right i love it we're talking to one talented and really good guy rob morrow thank you rob numbers let's get to numbers real quick let's get to Uh, because i want to start talking music with you because that's where you are right now i know you're spending a lot of time i call that i call music my salvation yeah that's what i'm talking about and that's what it has to be it has to be that so let's talk about numbers real quick how'd you land the role did you enjoy that that you know working on on the show and the set yeah, I dug it. I got bored after a while, but what I dug about it is I'm not a gun guy at all. Like, I'm just not, you know, and yet I would, I got to play with guns. I was like playing cowboys and Indians, but with the coolest toys, you know. So I loved, like they would say, they had to have these technical advisors that anytime we did anything that was procedural or tactical, these guys would come and tell us how to do it right, you know, from the FBI, and we took, tra- I trained at Quantico, and 
all this stuff, which was fun. But like we'd come into a scene and they we'd have these uh, these uh, automatic or semi-automatic rep weapons, and they'd say, you know, it's not like in the movies, you know, that you don't come in and spray the room. And I'd be like, okay, I got it. And they say, you just come in, you pick your target, you pop one, 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 one. And I'm like, okay. And they roll the camera, and I just go, Purr! I just spray the whole room because it was so much fun. Uh, I love doing that. I love rolling on bad guys and knocking doors down and throwing them up against the wall and being a badass. Yeah. Um, I love the people. You know, I loved Crumholtz and Judd Hirsch. I love those family scenes. Um, but the problem with those shows is they're the procedural show in the classic network sense is is the same format over and over. And so, you know, into the third, I was good for three or four seasons, and then I, then I started to get bored. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, because they, they didn't want to really, they didn't want to push the, they didn't want to push it in terms of the character. Because it's working, right? Because it's working. And who am I to argue? Like, I'm going to tell them how to yeah. do it. Here, they have a hit. We did 110 episodes, so who am I to say do it different? Wow. Even though I, I, if I'd given my druthers, I would do it different. Um but it was a good gig, you know, Ridley and Tony Scott produced it, and I got to know them, and I, I, I actually got Tony to direct an episode, and um, and I directed on it, and, you know, I got to direct action sequences, which I hadn't done too much of at that point. Um, so, it, and, and once again, I mean, I'm on a gig, a regular paycheck right. in L.A., you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to my kids, you know, I'm taking her to school a couple times a week, so it was a good it was a good run. Let's talk music. Where did this start? Was it something you did as growing up? You know, there's Johnny Depp. There's you. There's there's ba the Bacon Brothers. There's you know we 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 know this. So there's a lot of people that like to. There's Steve Martin. A lot of people love or started in music. Did you start in music or did you? When did all this come yeah, about? In a way, I, I started playing the drums when I was about six or seven, and. I think it's at the touchstone of everything I do creatively, from from acting, directing, writing, um, you know, everything I do, music, obviously. Uh, and so I played drums all the way through high school and played in the school bands and um, and then let that go and then started playing guitar in my early 20s. Um, I took a couple of years worth of lessons just so I could, I really liked to sing. So I wasn't, I had no, I just wanted to accompany myself. And so I, I learned how to play basic guitar. And, uh, and then that kept me going for like 15 years. You know, I just had a guitar with me always. I mean, on every set and I just strum. I didn't have any, I just, it just was fun. And sometimes I'd get into jams with people and, and I didn't think anything more of it, but, all along my whole career I was seeking a kind of creative autonomy you know I was seeking to be the voice of what I was doing or at least to be one of the voices and it's it's hard to find that you know I, I wrote a lot of screenplays I made one of them you know I, I I was constantly trying to find some way that I could be in charge of my own destiny and in a way that I could do the job without having to get it like I could just go in my room and work right. so I'm pretty disciplined about stuff, so I got really into it. And I was taking two, you know, I was taking a two-hour lesson once a week. And Conan O'Brien had just moved on to the Warner Brothers lot. He wanted to do this little PR thing where he had a camera in his waiting room, and anyone on the lot who was on a show could sign up and get ten minutes of time, and it would play on their website. Hmm. And so the 
PR people from my show came to me and said, you got to do something. <laughs> um, and I was like, okay, what do you want me to do? And they, said, and they always saw me with guitar. They said, well, why don't you write a song? I'd never written a song. And I said, uh, okay. <laughs> and, and they said, uh, and we need it in two hours. I was like, oh, okay. And I wrote lyrics about the, you know, apropos to the show. And I went on Conan's thing and my assistant held cue cards and I did. You can see it. It's on YouTube. <laughs> it's not great, but it's good. It's solid. It's like, okay. And, and a light bulb went off. I, I will, I will, damn, I wrote a song. Right. And that started me on this road where I started studying songwriting. And, and then I started to write songs and they weren't good. You know, I sucked. And, and I said, I know I have to, in order for me to learn how to do this, I'm going to have to go out in the world and do it. And so I would go to these clubs in L.A. and I would ask for the earliest slot, which would be like 7 o'clock. Nobody would be in the place, you know, <laughs> a couple people. And I would play my songs, I would videotape them, watch them, study them, learn. And over time, I started, the songs started to get better. And I started to kind of get an appreciation. Sort of to find your voice. You start finding your voice, and I was, too. And I was taking intense voice lessons at the time yeah. um, with yeah. an amazing guy named Eric Vitro, who's like uh, Ariana Grande's uh, and uh, Katy Perry and right. all these you know, major singers. And so I was studying with him intensely. And then I hooked up with this guy, Carlos Calvo. He's a lifelong musician and songwriter. And we started writing songs together. And then it all changed because he, he could, he, he, you know, encyclopedic knowledge about, about melody and, and, and right. chord structure and stuff. And so the combination of my, uh, naivete, but my, you know, I was a real, I love music. And so, and also because I, I'm, you know, I write all the lyrics and, you know, all the, the combination of our two sensibilities really started to create some cool songs. And now we've written a zillion songs yeah. and, they just keep getting better and better. And we started taking those, we started playing out and about just as a duo, and and we were getting good response. And then we put together a band, um, and we started playing the clubs in L.A. and sometimes out on the road, and all learning curve for me, you know. And I studied it. I watched, I, I tried to get video of everything we did so I could see what was working, you know, not just as a not just uh, sonically, but also, you know, visually, you know, as a performer, um, you know, getting comfortable performing and, and playing. And, um, and I practice a lot. I mean, I practice five, six hours a day still if I'm not working. Wow. Talking to the talented Rob Morrow, we are in a Mississippi Minute. I'm Steve Azar. Stand by. In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, right here on Super Talk Mississippi. I'm Steve Azar. We are with one talented actor and musician, Rob Morrow. What, what I've seen you, what I've seen and listened to some of his stuff, I feel like that there's some some Paul Simon and some America. Some uh, you get into this sort of spirit of and the way you strum your guitar and the way you sing, and y'all's voices sound incredible together. So it's a it works, you know, and um and I love it because. I feel like at times you're just like reverent to the words, you know. And at yeah. first I said, "Is he being cautious?" And I said, "No, he's being reverent to the to the." And I got it, and and I loved it. And 
And also, look, this is the answer. I had I had songwriters of the decade mentor me, songwriters of the year, and they are they are my pals, and they then they they really beat on me. But they tell me two things, and this was sort of the thing. They said, "What would you say next?" And I said, "What?" And then they said, "Sing it like you say it." And I said, "What?" They said, "The human ear is built." to hear words pop and syllables pop where a person talks. And so yeah, I'd go, yeah. where a person talks. You know, like, I don't know. The bottom line is you sing it like you say it and, and you're stuck. Well, what would you say next? You're having this yeah, structured yeah. conversation with an audience that's ready for you to tell them what you would say next. And that, that's what their ears are built for listening to. And, and also, I love it. I mean, you've got some heavy stuff and all that. And like your show, you, you said went all over the map when it came to the gamut of emotions. It was intellectual. And then it had moments of, of uh, you know, just normalcy uh, and, and could, could connect with the, uh, the highest and lowest of IQs. That's a difficult thing. But songs need to do that because in the music business, sometimes you hear, oh, that's, that's too intellectual for the listener. And it really upsets me because I'm going like, man, even a kid can understand some of the heaviest stuff. And they interpret it in their own ways. So I've always sort of differed when it came to like commercial music. And I've had commercial success. Uh, but, but man, when you play out live, and uh, and the songs that truly connect are the ones that are those hidden on that record. So, you know, I'm, I know I'm giving a, a I'm giving like a I feel like I'm teaching my my class no, at I'll Delta State I, right I now. I hear you. I mean, I, a, I have a tendency toward pretension, which I like, which I I, I, admit. Mm -hmm. I have to I have to I have to remind myself. It's not that I want to uh, talk down to anyone, but I want it to be accessible you know i don't yeah. want, i'm not interested in uh you know I, it's not like i'm i'm not going to be writing pop songs but but i want people to be able to take it in i don't want them to have to be sitting there getting their encyclopedia out and trying to understand what i'm saying right you know i want them to i want the music you know that's the thing to me why music is the purest of mediums is that it hits you viscerally music hits me in my stomach before it hits my ears and so right. I want my music to hit people in the stomach and, 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 then, and then expand into the rest of their, their senses. Exactly. I love that. I enjoy sort of working. I've got this crazy thing called All Access Azar, and, and I don't really tell anybody that. So, so now maybe I've spilled the beans, but I'll work with a few, few uh, hardworking uh, talented kids or older than kids a year um, uh, and, and keep them on and try to get them ready and prepared for the business. And I enjoy that so much. And, and obviously the variety that you get from individual artists, it just keeps it so fresh. So you're, I mean, it's like opening a brand new book every time or seeing a brand new film that has nothing to do with anything except there's a common thread of making music. And I, I do. I just, I, I, do I know I, I just wrote a song with Lisa Loeb. Which is so cool, oh, lovely. And, it, it, and it was just for the same reason. I just was like, I got to find something different, and you know, because mostly I've only written with Carlos, and we have a very—I uh, mean, it's simple, it's 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 simpatico, but it's our unique way of working. And so I was like, I got to see what would happen if I step in with another writer. And I knew Lisa a little bit, and I said, let's write a song. And she fortunately said, yeah, let's do it. And we sat down and it took us two days, but we came up with a great Christmas song or holiday song, I guess we call it. But um. And uh, it was a completely different way of working. And I kept having to kind of find, you know, obviously she knows more than me and been doing it longer than me, so I had to kind of get on her right. rhythm. But it was, um, it was a great lesson for me because I, I was like, okay, I can do it. So now I feel like, all right, I, I, you know, I know what I can do and I know, I know how to adapt. Which right. Was, which was cool. Yeah, you're built to do this. I mean, it's just you're, you're just, you're fearless, first of all, and you got to be that. But, and, but also you, uh, 
you just have the gut for it and the sense and, and you appreciate it and you got to appreciate it and you and you got there's some humbleness there that i love and that you got to have it so hey gotta have it. and also i agree with you like i think and when i try to tell people because like you you know it's i'm sure it come up to you all the time people saying oh i wish i could do i wish i could write songs or i wish i could perform or i wish i could sing have these people that say they can't sing i wish i could act i wish i could write it's like you got to do it and, and I keep trying to get this into my daughter. You got to be willing to fail. I mean, I went into these clubs with my guitar and I sucked, and I knew it. I knew it, I and I was it. like, I got to stick it out. I love and it. I don't suck anymore. Yeah. But I had to go through that. If you're willing to go through that that uh, that baptism or whatever, that fire, you know, you you will emerge, and and something will have transformed. And I love it. Uh, if you have that creative spark, then then you got to you got to just go for it. Wow! Hey, where can people get your music or go find just listen right now while while the record's being made and all that stuff? We got some tunes up on uh, iTunes and and most digital platforms, and there's there's a there's a ton of stuff on YouTube. And it's just under your name. Yeah, Rob Morrow Band. Rob Morrow Band. All right, I love it. We're gonna get the Rob Morrow Band down to the Delta, and get you to the All Delta right, Soul. Right. We got to get that. you guys and uh, and get you to experience uh, a little bit of this. You'd fit right in. Hey, my brother, we've been with Rob Morrow. I can't thank you enough for taking a Mississippi minute with me. It's been really great. Thanks, Thank pal. I appreciate you. Later on. All right, brother. I'm Steve Azar. In a Mississippi minute, all sixty of them where you can take your sweet time. It's easier than ever to hear Super Talk anywhere. Now you can get Super Talk Mississippi on Amazon Alexa devices. Just go to supertalk.fm slash Alexa to find out more. For news, politics, sports, and the good things happening in Mississippi, the conversation starts here. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.